HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Whole Foods Market. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. Hi, this is Celia Kutcher, host of Animal Instinct, and you are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. And uh, to start the program off, we're going to talk a little bit about my aches and pains. This is my new feature. And I really urge people to um, start sending me your own aches and pains, um, you know, things that you just feel like are worth griping about, because I find it really interesting and entertaining to come up with my own. But um, I'd love to hear other people's as well. So here's my first pain, Sprouts. Why do people eat sprouts? Don't eat sprouts. Alfalfa sprouts, mung bean sprouts, any kind of sprouts, they strike again and again. So most recently, there was an outbreak of um, shigatoxin-producing um, E. coli 0157H7, which is the one that was in the jack-in-the-box outbreak in 1994, and which has sickened literally millions of people around the world. Um, in this case, it is, has, has struck residents of Minnesota and Wisconsin, and though only so far about 9 or 10 people have been um, have reported it, most people don't report. So um, just stay away from those sprouts um and and why do you why you ask why are sprouts so likely to be contaminated well let me tell you because unlike other fresh produce seeds and beans need warm and humid conditions to sprout and grow these conditions are also ideal for the growth of bacteria, including Salmonella, Listeria, and E. coli. That's from the U.S. Food Safety website. So I don't know why sprouts are still in business, because given the number of times that they have been implicated in foodborne illness outbreaks, at least 30 in the United States alone since 1999, it's remarkable that they survive as a quote-unquote health food. They're not healthy. Ditch the sprouts. Please tell sandwich makers, don't put them on my sandwich, and don't ever buy them from a salad bar. Okay, that was that was pain number one. Here is a major, major ache in my system, and this is in honor of my guest today, Andy Smith, um, the well-known, the infamous, the incredible Andy Smith. Tell, the hardest, tell me more. <laughs> the hardest working man in literature. Um, um, this this is a major ache for me. Fast food chains are growing like mold all around the world. So yum. 
exclamation point, is about to open its first Taco, ta- Taco Bell in China. Papa John's is going Dutch, and they are also considering opening in Spain. Carl's Jr. is opening in Japan. Is this the very best that we can do in spreading American culture? Fast food, which, as you will hear from our today's guest, one Andy Smith, combines all the worst aspects of our food system, whether it's sourcing, labor, or environmental issues. So stay tuned, because he's going to tell you all the reasons why fast food um, is definitely the worst part of American culture. And last but not least is my major pain, different from my aches, my major pain is this. And this really is, this is huge and something that all, all Americans should be thinking about. WBEZ in Chicago investigate, investigated a professor of food science and nutrition at the University of Illinois at Champaign-Urbana. He was teaching a class on GMO safety, whatever that is, I don't know. Um, but he didn't think it necessary to advertise the fact that he had been paid nearly $60,000 in speaking fees by Monsanto or that the payments ultimately something like $140,000 over six years, had actually gone straight to the university. Whether they like filter it back to him, I don't know. So he doesn't get a direct paycheck from Monsanto, but he does get paid. And this is by no means an isolated incident, and especially in land-grant universities where money is tight. So most of them actually receive major donations from agricultural companies, and they expect to get the studies that they are paid for. And this has direct implications on how we continue to farm and our agronomical you know, system here, or our, our uh, agroecology system here. It's not ecology, our agronomy, right? Andy, help me. Agronomy, our agronomy here is, is directly impacted by all of these grants that are given by Monsanto, Syngenta, DuPont, Dow. They funnel these grants in, and then the scientists feel obliged to produce studies that essentially um, support what they do. And then that's touted as a major success. And by the way, if that professor fails to produce something that is complementary to the industry, then either the report is suppressed or they are publicly discredited, as happened recently uh, with a friend of mine at Texas A&M, a guy named Guy Lonergan, published a story, uh, published a report a study on ractopamine, and uh, Elanco, the drug company, was all over him, all over his colleagues, and um, really discredited him as a scholar, which was most unfortunate. So that is that is my aches and pains. Andy? Marion Nessel has been collecting all of the studies that have been oh. conducted by academics that have been also paid for or at least supported by the food industry, and her, her blog, Food Politics, That's has, right. now has, a, last I checked, it had a list of 120 such uh, studies Oh, no kidding. Of which, uh, I, I'm making this up, but it's something like oh, six no. Six were not in the interest of the funder, and the rest of them were, all were. So exactly. if you're really interested in that topic, check her food blog out. Yeah, and you should check out Marion Nestle's food blog, Food Politics, virtually every week, as I do, just to keep your finger on the pulse of what's going on, because she really is amazing. I mean, I don't know how she does. She's as hardworking as you are, Andy. Some of us check every day. <laughs> yeah, but are you reading Drover's Cattle Network? Are you reading Meat and Poultry News? Are you reading Pig Progress? <laughs> no, I'm reading all the wonderful studies that are conducted about sprouts that are... Uh... <laughs> you will be now. Okay, so let's go to a quick break, and we'll come right back with Andy Smith. We're going to talk about his new book, um, <clears throat> which is called... Uh, where is the title Fast of this? I want to fast food. The, the good, good, the bad, the bad and, and the, the hungry. hungry. Stay tuned. We'll be right back.
Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market, America's healthiest grocery store with more than 400 locations throughout the United States. Download the Whole Foods Market app on your smartphone for recipes, sales, information, and digital coupons. Or visit WholeFoodsMarket.com to find a store closest to you. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. And today we're going to talk about fast food with my friend Andy Smith. Andy Smith is the author or editor of 28 books, like I said, the hardest working man in literature, including the award-winning Oxford Encyclopedia on Food and Drink in America, um, Savoring Gotham, a food lover's companion to New York City, also Oxford University Press, that was last year, and his new book, which is uh, just coming out from Reaction Now, and that is called Fast Food, The Good, The Bad, and The Hungry. He also teaches American food history, contemporary food controversies, and professional food writing in the Food Studies Department at the New School in Manhattan, and he is the editor of the Edible series and the Food Controversies series for Reaction Books in London. And for more about Andy, you can visit his website, www.andrewfsmith, F as in Frank, smith.com. Andy, welcome. And thanks so much for coming into the studio. I don't often get guests who are like right in front of me anymore, I, you know, because it's a Monday and most people don't want to spend the time in the middle of a work day to come out here. So I really appreciate you doing the doing the due diligence I, there. I usually jog over here the four miles mm-hmm. from my home. But, Whoa. But the Today I had other things I had to do early in the morning, so I didn't get. The I have I have seen you do that when you've jogged over yeah. here. That's it's an and, impressive. And somehow you want to stay twenty thirty feet away from me. I don't understand why. <laughs> Never. I relish the scent. Um, <laughs> anyway, talk about a little bit about. Um, well, first of all, this book, uh, Fast Food: The Good, the Bad, and the Hungry. This is part of a series of at the moment three called Food Controversies. That is, are you the first book in the series? The fast Food Book is the first book in the series, and we have another one coming out on genetically modified uh, food, which, uh, which should be out in a few months. Oh, wow. Okay, cool. And we have uh, others under contract, yeah. and we're looking for writers. And that so. would be me. You, well, I just I was I'm hoping you'd mention that. And, <laughs> I am and by the those. way, the the, the um, it's due uh, this week. Yes, I thought it I'd is. point that out. So um, not not to put any pressure on. Yeah, no, 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 not at all. And meanwhile, my accountant, by the way, called me on Friday and said, "Um, you have to have your taxes in by Tuesday, or we're filing an extension." I was like, <laughs> "Okay." Anyway, taxes so, that means yeah. you get income. <laughs> oh, no, as a matter of fact, I still have to make the stupid tax thing happen. I have to file, but no, there was no income. There literally has been no income for six months while I was writing this book, which has got me now at this point absolutely like, you know, schwitzing. But it's all going to be good because after my book publishes, then I will fortune. be the, make a fortune. The toast, <laughs> the toast of the food world, right, Andy? Right. I know that's absolutely. what's happened to you. Absolutely. <laughs> Anyway, um, let's talk a little bit about your book, um, since we can't just like spend the whole time joking around. Um, why do you think that fast food joints like McDonald's are doing worse in the U.S. than they have been? And why is sort of the fast casual model doing better? Uh, well, for a couple things. One, uh, McDonald's has recently picked up steam again uh, that they're offering breakfast all day. I thought That's I'd right. just mention that. That did make and a difference. So, uh, but they're, they consider this a mature industry. I mean, you've got 30 or 40,000 fast food, no, excuse me, 200,000 fast food outlets in America today. And that's an awful lot. And so um, most of the growth is now occurring in other countries, not just developed countries, but the most surprising part to it is the developing world in which fast food operations are opening up right and left. 
Absolutely. Well, as we said in the, in the first section, the aches and pains section, they're growing like mold. I mean, um, last week I noted that uh, in Vietnam, 100 new McDonald's franchises are slated to open over the next couple of years. And that oh, just and, made and, me want to cry. In China, there are now 5,000 uh, KFCs, and yeah. they're anticipating 20,000, which is two or three times the size, total size of KFC in, in other countries. So you wow. look at this and say it's huge new world and and fast food is not looked on in other countries in the way it is in the United States today and so for at least the developing world it, uh, it is looked at as something American and this is positive um, and it is looked at uh, not for the poor because the poor will eat obviously street food and uh, mm. less expensive things but it's the middle class that has um, uh, disposable income that wants to go and have a little sample of what America is like I suppose it's considered kind of of a luxury item, and what's uh, right? I yes, mean, it is. is. That, yeah. And, and but what's interesting about the KFC expansion in China is that they have been rocked by terrible scandals, food Absolutely. scandals. I mean, they had the scandal most recently of um, they discovered both in uh, KFC and McDonald's a company called OSI, which is based here in the in the states, uh, has a I don't know what you would call it a. a a contractor or somebody they work in, um, Shuhi in uh, in China, sure, right. that was selling meat from the deep freeze that was like over several years old. I mean, people were freaking out over that. Yes, sales declined for a few months and then they're back on track but again. But they lost a lot of money from that. Yeah, but uh, again, you're looking at a huge chain with lots of outlets and people yeah. forget. And as surprising as it is, it gets visibility for the chain. It may not be the positive visibility that chains prefer. But every opportunity to get promotion and advertising helps. Amazing. So it's it's uh, amazing. You, you mentioned in your gripes and complaints earlier on the Jack in the Box, uh, 1964. Um, 94, yeah. Ni- ni- 1994 recent, yeah. concern, right. And, and all I can do is say, yes, sales dropped down for the first six months. And then they picked up and they, went, they skyrocketed. So, yes, there's problems. Yes, they need to be dealt with. But it doesn't necessarily mean that's going to stop the growth of fast food chains, which, by the way, I believe fast food is by far the most uh, the most uh, influential part of the culinary world today. It has been the most important trend for the last 50 years, and it will continue continue to be so for the next uh, foreseeable future. So it's not fast food. It's not organic food. It's not all the things that we love to talk about and that are really important. Fast food's having the influence every single day in America and in other countries. Yeah. Well, it's certainly driving the growth of the meat business. It's driving the growth of virtually every uh, agricultural business that you can think of, except sprouts. <laughs> yeah, I'm single-handedly going to put those sprouts out of business. Me and Bill Marler from Marler Clark. <laughs> he and I share two things that we both really hate. One of them is sprouts, and the other one is raw milk. There is a reason why milk is pasteurized. It is such a vector for disease. And when people tell me that they just, you know, their entire life was changed by drinking raw milk, I just want to slap them silly. But anyway, their entire life will change when they get, you know, hemolytic uremic syndrome from E. coli. Yeah, you bet your life is going to change. Anyway, um, why um, are, for example, are they using the same franchise model in India as they do here, or is like a whole sort of yum or uh, McDonald's? Are they setting up their own kind of corporation? And, you know, I'm just kind of wondering how they supply and how they keep the consistency in product without, 
um, without having like a sort of home base in there, each one of these countries. There, there are two different concepts. One is the chain, in which right. case McDonald's goes into Canada, opens up an operation, and it's a corporate operation. They found that that's not a particularly successful model working in other countries because there are different tastes, there are different interests. Right. Uh, and um, and so what they have begun to do is, um, is simply select franchisees that go out and, and make selections. They have a huge uh, franchise contract, which they have to sign, which keeps them under certain things. But in other countries, they do the best they can to meet uh, local needs. So if you're in India, you're not going to serve beef. Right. If you're in the Middle East, you're not going to serve pork. Uh, and so you have all sorts of different shifts and changes in the menu so that it is not the same menu that is served here. They try to have local traditions and local flavors that are built into what they serve. Right. And they've been very successful. How do they guarantee the consistency of the product, though, um, if, you know, if, say, in India, there, yeah, I recognize that they have different things on the menu than they might have here, but there's got to be some basic. A franchisor sort of- is selected for a geographical area. The, franch- uh-huh. the franchisor is then responsible for getting the supply system coming in. So, oh, in Europe, for instance, the McDonald's, I think it's less in France, for instance, it's less than one percent of the products are imported into France. With all ninety-nine percent of the products are all done locally, so wow. there really are a local business. Even though they may be serving American food, Whoppers, yeah, yeah. or that's Burger King, right? That's yeah. Burger King. Quarter they, pounders. They don't, can't serve quarter pounders in France because they're in the metric system. But it's the. <laughs> but we got to work right. with you on this yeah. globalization I side know, too. Here. Really, man, I am such an ignoramus. Um, I, I really found your that whole part of the book fascinating. So you were talking about um, the menu changes. Do you have some cool examples? Like I know in India they had like a tandoori flavored something and a yeah. It, Every country, whatever the local spice and flavoring is, is what they incorporate into their menu. But what I liked, at least initially, was in Germany, uh, I would always, for professional reasons only, check out fast food there. <laughs> because they serve beer. Um, and in France, <laughs> right. they serve wine. And I just want you to know that now some I'm told some Burger Kings are now selling beer in America. So No kidding. No kidding. So I'm going to have to go down and give it a shot. I, it, for professional I reasons only. I understand. It's just understand. research. Yeah, I it's, totally it's, get it's, it. It's, it's, obli- it's an obligation. <laughs> It's, it's a tough it's, job. It's tough. It's really tough. <laughs> what about like um, what? I, I know you mentioned that some of the um, some of the, uh, some countries are developing their own fast food chains. Yes. Um, what kinds of food are they serving? Is it the same sort of idea of the Whopper? You know, like I mean, something that you eat in your hand that doesn't require a knife and fork that you know, satisfies the car culture, because that's really... I mean, we should talk for a little bit about how the car culture, you know, influenced the All growth right. of... Two different things. Car culture, second. Yeah, car okay. culture is not an important part of most fast food operations uh, in, in developing... In other countries. World, in other countries, right. right. Uh, but... Um, the interesting thing is uh, you, you have a chain and then you have franchisees and the franchisees then make the determination as to what they're going to be selling. And obviously they're going to be selling things that make some sense. So um, um, that's that's part of the way the operation goes. Sure, sure. Um, so, um, oh, you, you had a very funny bit about um, the McDonald's French fry. Yes. And why and why other companies were unable to make their french fries as fantastically delicious as the McDonald's french fry I, even though they were I, using the I, same equipment and the same potato breed. I, I, I wish to uh, admit 
publicly now that I went to McDonald's hamburgers <laughs> in 1956 uh, when I was 10 years old. Oh my and God! I just, and I just the year went, of my birthday. I just want you to know the burgers did not taste particularly great, uh, but the French fries were fantastic, and um, and they only had six or seven items that they had on the menu, and that was the total total menu yeah. that McDonald's had at that time. But what they found was the McDonald brothers were using a particular uh, type of potato, and they because it, it was in San Bernardino, they kept their potatoes outside, and um, they dried out because it's a very dry climate, ah. and so the French fries that they were serving was incredibly good. When, when McDonald's began to open up a the country, they tried to do the same thing, and that and that didn't taste as good. Yeah. And so, for a long time, it took them uh, a while to figure out exactly what they had to do. Now, uh, every unfortunately, every French fry now served in fast food establishments is um, is grown in one place. It's the same variety of potato. Uh, they use similar processes on it, but then they coat the potato with different types of flavorings. So the uh, most French fries have sugar in them. Uh, most French fries have uh, flavorings. They have additives of one sort or another. So the flavor really? that comes through in the fast food French fries today are really um, not natural. They're, they're unnatural flavorings that have been added. Wow, I didn't know that. Now, didn't they originally uh, cook the French fries and beef tallow as yes. well, and wasn't well, that? Well, but that was one of the flavorings that they had. Yeah. And so um, McDonald's did not announce that their uh, French fries were not vegetarian, and so right. there was a lawsuit that in, that um, vegetarians brought and said, we went into McDonald's and ate their French fries thinking that they were really vegetarian, but they had beef tallow in them. And I just want you to know, in India, one of the McDonald's was sacked because they thought it was serving beef tallow to them, Whoa. which in fact it wasn't, but that was another part of the story. So in in the end, McDonald's says, oh, you're absolutely right. Um, uh, we give $10 million to um, vegetarian and to nutritional programs and whatnot. Um, they got a lot of good visibility out of it. And they yeah. stopped removing beef tallow. But the beef tallow gave the flavor to the, the potatoes. I hate to say it. They don't of have a lot of flavor. Do. And right. so you got to add something in order to, to make the flavor. And now it is the flavoring, and it's the salt, and it's the other And the other sugar are, and the, The yeah. sugar that are added, yeah. So Wow. That's that's so disturbing. <laughs> it's so it's so um, it's so sad that they have to flavor them with all those different compounds instead of just you know going with a good old potato. Anyway, you described um, that the first analysis of the nutritional content, or rather lack thereof, um, as uh, a document called Fast Food Facts, which was yes. published in 1983, yes. and then there was a Fast Food Guide yes. in 86. Why why were those being written? Were the fast food chains already being you know seen as culprits in the obesity develop, develop, developing obesity crisis? No, but the or fast food that... chain at that point were rapidly expanding throughout the United States, mm-hmm. and so the, the fast food chain model begins with the McDonald Brothers in San Bernardino, California, in 1948, and it really doesn't begin to expand rapidly until. Um, um, Ray Kroc comes along and begins right. to move the McDonald Brothers operation into America and then into other countries. And so there are thousands of fast food chains that were opening up, all following the McDonald's model. The McDonald's set a model that was followed by everybody else that worked. And so um, that model was followed by KFC. 
It was followed by Burger King. I mean, they, they literally went out, took one look at what the yeah. McDonald brothers were doing, visited the place. Oh, we can do a better job than that if we serve tacos. And uh, right. you have Taco Bell coming out of that. So you have this model that's being followed, and it's rapidly expanding. So that by the 1980s, there were large numbers of people that were eating fast food. And a large number of Americans had disposable income. They had growing families. Um, they had less time. Um, they had televisions. So that they're watching a lot more television right. and less time cooking and less time going to the grocery store and things like that. So it, it, it is ne- there's not much that's negative that is written about fast food uh, until the 1980s. And so prior to this time, it was surprising. It was interesting. It was, oh, look at that. Let's go sample it. And, and let's, let's, let's look at Ronald McDonald and go get a toy. You know? Yeah. So there's lots of shifts that are going on. Well, we're going to talk about that in a second. But um, before we get there, I want to talk a little bit about portion sizes and calorie counts. Yes. Um, because you, you described some really amazing <laughs> examples. For example, the double donut in Scotland. Tell us about that. Oh, I forgot. What, how much, what, what were the calories? It was like twenty six hundred calories. Oh, let, let's let's go to Scotland. <laughs> burger. I mean, that's like more than you're supposed to consume in an entire day. An entire day. day. Yeah. Well, th- those things. Uh, you know, it's not necessarily that people eat them, but what those things do is give huge visibility to the chain. Right. And so chains learn very quickly that if they have something really unusual, that it gets a lot of free publicity. So, for instance, now Burger King is selling the hot dog, um, and so every news paper and every blog in America has now covered right. whether you like hot dogs or not and whether you buy a hot dog or not but it gives uh, Burger King huge visibility throughout the world right. and so you each time they do things like this it, it gets them visibility and 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 corporations live off free free advertising right absolutely as you pointed out earlier any ink is whether it's negative or positive is better than no ink at all so I mean, that's like it's like getting a bad review on stage. You know, it's like as long as your name gets mentioned in enough places, who cares what they actually said? Um, tell us about the cheeseburger law. Well, cheeseburger, that was an interesting. A, a large number of uh, lawsuits have been uh, uh, conducted against uh, or instituted uh, against fast food chains, and mm-hmm. one of them were people who were obese who ate it at uh, certain fast food places. You know, five days, seven days a week for, yeah. for fifty years or thirty years or five. years or whatever it is, and are beast, and are claiming that because those companies initially did not give any calorie counts, uh, there's uh, they had some responsibility in their obesity. And of course, n- none of the obesity laws, uh, or the lawsuits have so far uh, paid off. Uh, but uh, it, it, it made. Uh, fast food chains aware that they had responsibility for health and nutrition, and many of them actually have modified their menus because of the bad publicity that they're getting Mm -hmm. partly from cheeseburger laws, which have prevented people from suing fast food places because they're obese uh, and and because of the lawsuits themselves. So um, mm-hmm. you, you have a lot of fascinating uh, things that are happening within the industry, and not all of them are bad. I'll phrase it that way. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I don't know what I think about fast food. I mean, I, I, I hate sort of what they do. At the same time, I recognize how valuable they are. Um, and certainly in areas where food is hard to come by. I mean... Not every place is like New York. My, my, my biggest complaint is the advertising and marketing to children. To children, yeah. And, and uh, as one uh, advertising executive said, get them young and you got them for life. And, right. and so uh, initially, Ray Kroc and the McDonald Brothers targeted 
uh, suburbs. I mean, the, the goal was there's suburbs were growing in America after World War II. There was no Dell restaurants. There were no grocery stores. There was nothing there. Rick Rock would fly over cities, look at where the suburbs are being constructed, so that's what we're going to do a McDonald's wow. burger. And so that was the target. But Ronald McDonald came along in 1964, and all of a sudden uh, they looked at this and said, now we have learned that the real target is children. It isn't adults. It isn't even families. And so giving toys uh, and other premiums along right. with the food uh, and having meals, happy meals, and other things that are targeting children. That's what I object to oh, in, in the fast food industry because they I've watched kids in fast food restaurants. They don't care about the food. They care about the toy. Yeah. They care about the jungle gym that's the that's there or the other things that are available. Right, right. Um, and and they're okay. eating, <clears throat> kids are eating the wrong things. They're eating the french fries. They're drinking the soda. And they're, they're doing the things that are not good for them. And that's despite the, the sort of cursory efforts on the part of, of the fast food chains to, like, add some apple slices to the Happy Meal or encourage kids to drink milk or water instead of soda. Th- those things are all nice, but, but they're superficial. But they're, totally. they're not They're not having an influence on what kids eat. Uh, and, and that's what I do hold the fast food industry responsible for. If they didn't, if they only advertised and targeted adults, then that's adults' decision. You make a decision right. as to where you're going to go and what you're going to eat. Uh, and uh, particularly now with, uh, with the requirement that men have the calorie count, the yeah. salt count, and other other nutritional things. We need to educate Americans about what those mean, but I think that's that's a step in the right direction. Oh, definitely. But you know, didn't I read recently that the that the calorie counts, um, <clears throat> even though there are calorie counts on the menus, most Americans don't really care. Like they look at it and they're like, "Yeah, but I want a Whopper." I mean. You know, I don't care that it's 1,600 calories. Uh, well, in, in it, part, it's education. I mean, we yeah. have not educated Americans to what 1,600 calories means. And and, right. and and so in part of this, we've we've removed nutrition education from high schools. And so where do, where do young adults gain their knowledge about nutrition? And it and it's from the Internet. And, and most of the Internet, yeah. the now fast food companies are spending huge amounts of energy and money on, um, on all sorts of Internet apps and games and um, and uh, tie-ins and, I mean, advertising and promotion. It isn't television anymore. Uh, that's the problem. It really is the Internet. And kids mm-hmm. spend, uh, you know, some, some kids spend as much as six hours a day online. And you look at that and say, that's a disaster because parents can't mediate the influence. At least with television, you know it's going on and you can tell the kids to turn it off. Uh, yeah. But it's um, d- difficult to do with regard to the Internet. And, right. and that's and part of the And especially with those phone apps. <clears throat> I mean, to me, that's even more pernicious because I think with the Internet, you can put an ad blocker on. You can, I mean, there are some ways to mitigate that advertising on the Internet. Um, but there's when you have a cell phone, you know, a smartphone like every kid in America has now, um, those they just spring up. Those apps are just like at you all the time and they're free. And they, as you pointed out, they offer games, they offer coupons, they offer toys, you know, and it's like, who can possibly, um, who can possibly resist that? Um, What about in other countries? Um, Are they doing the same thing? Are they, you know, when, when uh, Uh, there's laws, other countries are much more strict on uh, an advertising, for instance, Mm -hmm. some countries now say you, you cannot advertise on television and they're trying to figure out how they can prevent advertising on, on internet, which is much more uh, difficult from a legal standpoint. So, so that's part of the problem. Uh, But uh, they've also had lots of other restrictions on, um, on they're putting now 
a number of countries are taxing uh, fast food and they're they're taxing soda and they're taxing junk food and and the thought my thought is if we could do something like that in America and use the tax not to go into the government coffers, but to actually pay for education yeah. about nutrition and health issues, that that would be a, a double plus. That one, that people who are consuming fast food are helping to pay for education to other Americans or people, other people in other countries. I think that makes some sense, and that's that's worthwhile exploring. Absolutely. I think that's a brilliant idea, Andy. And, you know, I... You know, when you talk about like other countries who are able to limit advertising to children, or they're able to um, put a tax on soda, and I just like I'm just rolling my eyes and throwing my hands up because, you know, people try to do that in this country, and just the pushback from the industry is so tremendous. You're you're absolutely right, and uh, <laughs> having just written an so essay on soda, all I can do is say yes, they've lost every single opportunity to increase taxes, with the exception of Berkeley, California, which right. now has a small tax on soda. Yeah. But in the meantime, it has gotten huge visibility for the idea that uh, sodas have huge amounts of calories in them, and people don't realize how many calories that they're consuming. And the sales for the last 10 years of soda have been declining. And so That's at true. least they may have lost the battles, but but those who are trying to point out the problems with soda are, are winning the war. Yeah. And, it seemed, and, and the soda companies themselves are now diversifying into more healthy beverages and to other products. So they're looking at this and saying, on the long run, this is going to be a problem, and we need, we need to begin right. to look at other things. Right. So. Fascinating. Um, uh, let's see. Where are we here? Because we've managed to cover about five questions here in one. Oh, how, how have fast food chains responded to the environmental concerns over their products? Not very well. Or their packaging, <laughs> for example? Well, I mean, the packaging is a little better story. Better. Um, and uh, if you go into most fast food places now, you'll see the, the napkins are brown. And the reason is because they're using recycled paper. Well, that's Yay. a good step forward. Uh, and styrofoam cups in most, though not all, fast food establishments are no longer used. I, I read a statement saying that styrofoam takes 66,000 years for it to degrade and I have I'm not going to be around then but uh, <laughs> I believe whatever they say but but many of the many of the fast food companies have now trans, trans have shifted from that many of the fast food companies are doing the best that they can to have zero waste from their corporate offices right. and many of them are trying to do what they can to recycle the waste products that come out of their own operations those are all good steps uh, it doesn't mean that they have solved the problems of the environment, but that's one side to it. The other side to it is, are fast food chains responsible for their suppliers? And if you look at their suppliers, for instance, why do we have a meat industry that has concentrated animal feeding operations that go into um, non-unionized meat packing operations? And to the extent that fast food has huge uh, orders that they have and contracts that control the prices means that this industrial meat system for instance is part of part of eating a hamburger and yeah so if 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 they are responsible for their suppliers the answer is they've not begun to deal with environmental issues that they're that are there well they do McDonald's was a big player in something called the global roundtable for sustainable beef um, they and Cargill and uh, I think as, JBS as, uh, and a bunch of other corporations are involved. You speak like a knowledgeable person on the subject. <laughs> did, did, have you finished writing a book on, on meat? Uh, I have. And actually, I didn't really mention that um, because, you know, the thing is, is that they... I, 
I, I sort of see what they're doing as as, as greenwashing. Um, there isn't a real uh, sea change envisioned by any of these big players in terms of how uh, cattle or any other animal protein is raised and, and slaughtered. Um, this is just a way to sort of throw a sop to uh, people who say, well, you're supporting this you know, rapacious meat industry. Um, what are you doing to make them do better? And this is, you know, and, and mostly what their legislation has come down to or what their or their uh, their mm, sort of efforts have come down to is is to try to cut down on the cutting down of trees in South America, rainforest, specifically right. in the, in Brazil in the rainforest. Yeah, yeah but also um, for if, for those of us that that love donuts, um, all I can do is say it's palm oil, and it's palm oil yeah, in right. Indonesia and in Southeast Asia, for instance, that um, is being rainforest is being destroyed in order to produce the palm oil that goes into helping us prepare our our uh, our, our, our donuts. So you've got you've got awareness, and you've got some shifts that are underway in the industry is at least trying to make sure that they don't get bad publicity, yeah. uh, even if they're not seriously considering environmental impact. Now, you mentioned there are changes that are underway. Chipotle, for instance, whether whether we whether we like them or not, um, um, you know, they're doing the best they can to have non-antibiotic uh, uh, meat that's being served. They're doing the best that they can to have non-GMO ingredients. I mean, some comp- there's, yeah. there is no reason why fast food companies can't have sustainable beef and still make money. They do that in other countries. I mean, that's the strangest thing. In other in Europe, right. if you go to it, they have non-GMO products in virtually all of the fast food operations. Many of them do not have concentrated animal feeding operations as suppliers. So you look at this and say, if you can make a profit on this in other developed countries, why can't you do that in America? And the answer is you can. And so it just means that the industry has to begin to, to look at changes. And one of the ways it's going to look at changes because you got you got a number of uh, places like uh, industry chains like Chipotle that are beginning to explore other ways of doing things. Right, right. Um, yes, I mean I'm, I'm going back to the GMO thing for a second because I think GMO ingredient. I don't think they grow any genetically modified uh, corn or soy in Europe. I think they have not. They will import it as a feed for their. Animal operations. Yeah, it's a little confusing they are not because actually growing it, as yeah, far as I know, it, it, it's a little confusing because uh, Europe depends on on meat from Brazil, and b- yeah. virtually all of the Brazilian Im- exports are are based on concentrated animal feeding operations and, and on are GMO, fed GMO crops. crops. Yes, so, right. so it's it's a little con- more complex than is there, but uh, but at least you can say that the companies in other countries have made profits uh, by having food that most of us would say is, is healthier and better for us and better for the planet. Uh, and if you can do that in France and you can do that in England, you can do that in Germany, you can do that in the United States. Yeah, and you can certainly pay people more. Um, one of the things we didn't get a chance to talk much about, but I, I do want to finish this up by talking about labor. Um, I was hoping you'd ask. Yeah, labor relations, uh, unions, unionizations. Like you had a great um, thing about Jimmy John's and how there were you know, these vast efforts to unionize at Jimmy John's. And then in the end, the workers voted down the union. By two what votes. Happened? I mean, oh, it was just, only by two votes. Yeah. But why would anyone vote against unionization when it would guarantee you like a regular schedule? Because, where you because the company went in and made promises to people who voted uh, no against the union. And also. 
also, incredible. You, you have to understand that most fast food labor, I mean, they, they're in and out. It's, it's not as though people yeah. spend years, many, many people uh, just spend a, a few months or even less in terms of their work. So they're really part-time and, and they're not full-time employees. And mm-hmm. so the ideal is, is after you, after you get tired of this, move on to something else. Yeah. Um, so it's not as though you have a, a stable workforce like other corporations do. Right. So at least that's part of the message that's there. But I just wanted to point out that uh, McDonald's in Denmark gives $19 an hour. They are right. unionized. And the McDonald's Corporation in in uh, Denmark is making a fortune. So there is no reason on why you can't pay uh, fast food workers are all workers for that matter more money and still make a good and decent profit right. now i just want you to point out that i want to point out that fast food workers uh, who work full time which is not a lot uh, for four straight months uh, can equal the hourly pay of the CEO of uh, of uh, McDonald's, which is $9,000 per hour. So uh, you start looking at the diversity of pay between executives and, and those who are were actually doing the work in the fast food chains, and that is an incredible um Disparity, abyss. yeah, that's horrible. So just a, so $9,000 an hour for the executive. Yes. And that would it would take a worker four months. Yes, if you if you made work. the average pay in yeah. McDonald's, which is eight dollars and sixty five cents or something like right. that, in order to do that. And also, I want to point out that fifty two percent of those who are working in fast food chains are on some sort of government assistance. Yes. The vast majority are on, which is ironic, they're on SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, formerly called food stamps. And so here you have people who are working in an industry that are on that are getting help that the rest of us are paying seven billion dollars in our That's taxes right. to help to cover their expenses because the food industry themselves are not doing it so it's not as though we're not paying for th- yeah. for this it, we are paying we're paying through taxes you think that your whopper only costs three dollars and 25 cents but actually it costs it costs you know, more. 12 or 15 or $20 and, because and, of these added add-ons. And the best estimate is that fast food workers, the, the labor is only 20% cost of the fast food industry. Yeah. So if you increase labor uh, by, by 2% or, or some very small amount of work, the cost of a burger would go up a few cents. Right. And so, so and that's virtually all of the non-industry paid studies indicate that. The industry paid studies indicate, well, you're going to have to pay $10,000 for a hamburger once the... So you've got this disparity that's going on, but in terms of that, it's not a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, And um, that seems to me to be a minimum within the industry. You need to pay people a a living wage. That's why everybody's asking for 15 bucks for these guys. Something like more than than 60% of those who are working in fast food establishments are either single parents or they they are, uh, uh, or their students, or, or their students, or their their uh, their people who um, you know just don't don't have the ability to get income on the side. And right. uh, that to me is an important issue. And I'm so delighted that uh, New York State now has got a fifteen up to fifteen dollars an hour uh, in a few years that yeah. is required. And my only hope would be that that could occur throughout the uh, throughout America, even in restaurants. And uh, restaurants have their serious problems. Problems too, oh my which God. I would love to yeah. discuss in another time. We'll do that another time when you write the book on that. <laughs> 
if you haven't already. We only have a couple minutes left, so I want you to talk about where you're going to be. Um, you know, giving talks on this book and uh, how people can learn more about it. And I was hoping you'd ask. I, 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 I know. All about promoting you, Andy. Oh, are you so wonderful? Seriously, or uh, man. I will, I will be in a couple of weeks. I will be in uh, Los Angeles with the culinary historians. Of, Fantastic. Of, um, of Southern California. And I think it's whatever that Saturday is, April 8th. I will be the following week at Boston uh, University uh, and doing a presentation on fast food and at, at Harvard and doing a presentation. There, um, I have a number of. Do other you have a slideshow that goes with this? I, I am the entertainment when I, <laughs> when I do. I've been to your I, talks. I love I, them. I dislike PowerPoint. I, I dislike. Yeah, I hate PowerPoint. Except myself. if you're in art. Now, art's different, you know. But but in my case, I am the entertainment, and yeah. um, uh, and I know what I'm going to be talking about, and so I don't need the help of a, a PowerPoint Visual projection. Aids, yeah. Oh yeah, point number yes. one. Allow me to look read two, off the me, screen. Three, point three. Is. Yeah, right. Because I know you can't read actually. <laughs> so um, so no, but you don't a, do visual aids like the you know like sort of the like the old time fast food designs uh, and stuff like that because that I. I've thought about that, uh, and I do incorporate them. Uh, uh, I do incorporate illustrations into other books. Um, yeah. So the book that I, uh, the hamburger book, a global history, for instance, has got the right, initial picture yeah. of what the McDonald's looked like, which has nothing to do with what it looks like today. Right. Right. So um, I, I've incorporated. That was a great book too, by the way. I was hoping you'd mention that. Yeah, um, I, I love that book, and also how the how the Civil War was won, starving the South. I, 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 Is that the right I, title? I, Did I, I get that wrong? I fell in love with the Civil War when I was a teenager. I, I have no known reason on why that was the case, but it's been a fat. I wasn't a. I was in California. I wasn't a. Yeah, and you're a Midwestern boy, right? Aren't you from Wisconsin? No, I'm a Californian. You are. I'm a. I'm a why did I think you'd grown up in Wisconsin? I flew over that. A <laughs> times. Um, and, and I waved. Uh, yeah. No, of that's not true. I've, I've uh, been to the brewing industry in Milwaukee. So right. all I can do is say, in any case, um, but um, which is one of the reasons why I went to McDonald's in 1956. Uh-huh. And, and I actually were, worked right? in San Bernardino at one point and the McDonald Brothers uh, restaurant had is, uh, was there. It was a real dump. Um, yeah. It wasn't at all the, the shiny new designs and architectural things that they created. Uh, that they never, in fact, used. Uh, that it wow. really was only franchisees that used their their, 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 their design and architecture. Amazing. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, we have come to the end of our time period. Thank you so much for joining me again. Andy Smith's website is www.andrewf as in franksmith.com. And the book, again, is Fast Food, The Good, The Bad, and The Hungry. I highly recommend it. Um, and look for other titles in this series, Reaction, R-E-A-K-T-I-O-N. There's a really neat British press. Um, they've done a huge series on edibles. Um, one of the upcoming books in the edible series will be on edible flowers. Um, just so happens the, one of the authors is sitting in the studio with us. Um, and, uh, and, and, and much, much more. They have an amazing series. There's like 67 books in that series now? We have 60 books right now wow. and we have 30 more under contract. Unbelievable. And, and my hope is that we'll hit 100. Good you know? for you. I mean, and you're the editor, right? It's a tough job too. Somebody's got to do it. Honestly, Andy, I don't know how you do it all. Anyway, thanks for listening and thanks to my uh, my sponsor today was Whole Foods. Uh, we will see you, um, well, I think next week. The station may be on hiatus, but um, anyway, I'll be back in a few weeks. So uh, have a good one, folks, and thanks for listening today. So long. <laughs> Oh, 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 oh,
Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.